you use a lot of anime or anime-esque iconography. Just why did you choose this style? Well, one practical reason is that I believe that trans people are currently the best audience to expand this to early on. And that's in particular why I have the cat girl thing. Welcome back to the Unreal Press Podcast, the net's first and foremost discussion of transgressive fiction, online culture, and everything from 4chan that's actually good. And today we just don't have something from online culture, no, we've got an entire religion. That's right, today we're discussing Alpha, Lambda, Omega, or evolutionism. And as always, I am your host, Ali Labashane, and a bit of personal trivia that does actually matter, as much as I now like to keep work and hobbies separate, my day-to-day -day work is actually in the Faculty of Theology. I'm a researcher at one of South Africa's major public universities, and I specialize in practical theology, community engagement, and looking at how we can transform cities and remove religious, cultural, and ethnic tensions in urban spaces. So unlike usual, where I just you know talk off the cuff and I try and thumbs up content, I do actually have a bit of background for this, which is quite helpful. And uh, what's even more helpful is this nice tobacco I got from the local tobacconists. Good uh, house blend, largely cherry. And I've got to say, it's way better than the rum and maple stuff I was smoking last time. Now, it pairs well with, you know, sitting back and pretending you're all classy and, you know, talking about the empire, like, oh, you know, when Rhodesia still existed. But I'm not doing that. Instead, I'm actually talking theology. And I'm talking theology with the founder of evolutionism, Kamidere. Welcome. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. I'm very happy to be on. Awesome. And not only that, but because I know basically fuck all about science, because I failed the subject in high school and then dropped out, I brought on a prominent sci-fi author in the indie community to, you know, fill in my gaps. Thanks, James. Good to have you on as always. Happy to help. Without further ado, Kami, I, I know I don't like want to put you on the spot here, but, you know, maybe just on one leg, can you explain to me, what is evolutionism, and why is it going to take the world by storm in 2030? Well, the purpose of evolutionism is to give everybody, no matter who you are, immortality so that you can explore the stars and also gain enlightenment. Oh, that's impressive stuff so yeah immortality enlightenment and space exploration that's what we're talking about yes so my intention is to get everyone signed up for cryonics so that people can be revived later on in a future that they create i see okay and now I'm, I'm looking over your website here, which I will link in the description of this podcast. Thank you. And one thing I see is three huge Greek letters, like on the letterhead and on the little icon at the tab, Alpha, Lambda, Omega. How does that play into the idea of evolutionism? Then? Well, Alpha, Lambda, Omega is the formulation of divinity and the mission that we use for the religion. So Alpha is the beginning and ancestors. Lambda is maintaining and growing, and then Omega is the end. You might be familiar with Omega in the uh, 
formulation of the omega point. The omega point. I can say that I am. I'm familiar with uh, conceptions like this in Hinduism and Christianity, but I haven't heard of this omega point. What's that? The omega point is a concept that was developed by a French priest named Pierre Chardin. All right. And it was based on his conception of an ultimate cosmic unity that would occur theologically and technologically. I see. Where once we start to develop sufficient communication technologies and become spiritually and technologically advanced enough, we will all converge to a single point that he called the omega point. Right. So then that's at like the end times. And this is then the goal of the religion is to reach physically this omega point. Yeah. We want to let everyone participate in it. Right. So then this religion is for everyone. It's not, you know, for instance, like Judaism, where not anyone can, for instance, be Jewish. Evolutionism is for everyone. Anyone can apply. Yeah, it is, for, it is for everyone, and it's not just for everyone who believes either. It's for everyone. I want everyone to be able to participate, even if they don't believe, by being able to uh, choose to have the process done to them before their death and then be revived. Okay, but then how would that work? I'm immediately seeing a question of consent here. If I don't believe you can actually pull off this omega point, what would be the incentive for me to apply for cryonics through your organization? Well, uh, you might just want to uh, get cryonics, and I want this to be available to everyone. So still consent, but I don't consider the strength of somebody's belief or anything like that to play a role. If you believe in it strongly, then you should be uh, working with the organization to make it a reality. But even if you don't believe at all and just decide to uh, make a leap of faith, I want this to be available to you. Even if you are potentially a very bad person who has acted against the principles. I see. But that begs the question then, what are the principles of evolutionism? How do we get to this omega point? How should people live? Well, I formulate this with alpha, lambda, omega. So alpha is creativity, lambda is anti-fragility, and omega is love or agape. Agape. Okay, that's pretty interesting terminology. So just for all our viewers at home slash wherever the hell you're watching this, hopefully somewhere interesting like your work, agape is a word for love in Greek. Specifically, if I remember correctly, it was popularized in the Gospels, which were written in a dialect of Greek called Koine. And agape is this self-sacrificing, unconditional love. In the Christian tradition, it's the love that people believe that God, Jesus, has for everyone. It's this reaching out with generosity and compassion before anyone has a chance to respond or to choose first, essentially extending an olive branch. Is it the same thing then in your Omega tradition? Yes, I see Omega as having two main elements, and those are accepting love and then giving love, but it's primarily about accepting. Right, right. So that would then be 
not only accepting the cryonics, but accepting the work of the Church of Evolutionism and then actively working towards this omega point. Yes, although I consider the virtues of Lambda to be uh, more about actively working with the Church and omega being more a matter of uh, accepting it and then not trying to deny it to others either. So, okay, then I'm sensing these are like tiered in some way. So yes. what does then Omega come first with this acceptance? Then we have Lambda in the participation. Yes, and then we have Alpha with creation. Right. I have organized it into a series of three different covenants. The Omega Covenant, then the Lambda Covenant, and then the Alpha Covenant. And then I suppose then each of these builds on the previous one. Yes, each builds on the previous one. So I, I don't want to pressure people too much like some other religions do. Right. I want to set up everything so that everyone trying to follow a specific set of laws has the easiest one first, and then a slightly harder one, and then the hardest one. Right, right. So it's, it's not that you jump into evolutionism and you're automatically expected to uphold every commandment. Rather, you work through it and grow in the religion. Yes, exactly. And then I'd like to know, for anyone who's interested in evolutionism, and this sounds good so far, how do you join? How do you, like, become an evolutionist, if that's the right term for this? I currently have a form on the website that lets you sign up to, uh, sign up to go on a list for cryonics. If you want to be more involved, you could say yes to uh, doing a survey and being contacted by us, or you could just uh, join the Discord server. Right. The All Discord right. server is probably better because we aren't that strongly organized right now. And so then what I'm getting here is that this religion is online. It's a faith based on the internet. That's a horror way you're spreading this message. Yes, it is. Okay. Although... Unlike some other religions, such as a lot of neo-pagan traditions, I do not see online as being the end goal. It's just a path along the way. Yeah. Yeah, you've, you've mentioned explicitly creating an institution, having medical treatments, and obviously, you know, that would require that people interact in a physical space there. Yes, it would. All right. And then, so the topic of cryonics. This is, you say, the major role, well, the major process you'll use to ensure that people can then be, you know, quote-unquote, resurrected and brought yes, to immortality. it is. Oh, okay, granted, I don't know too much about cryonics, but maybe, James, you can help explain here. But as far as I understand, aren't modern cryonics very unreliable? Like, we don't have solid evidence that you can really freeze a person physically and, you know, defrost them later and actually address what's wrong with them. Has that ever been done before with a human? It has not been done with a human for reviving them yet. Right. This is something that is actively researched, I believe, um, since you need to know how to, the best way to store, say, organs for transplants. And people are, of course, interested in freezing and thawing out hundreds of thousands of years from now. Um, by the way, quick question before we get into this. Is Elon Musk your patron saint or something, if you want immortality and star exploration? Well, Elon Musk isn't, unless he changed his view just recently, 
a uh, advocate for immortality. I would say uh, a person who has been more of an influence on me, although somebody who uh, I disagree with strongly in many ways, is Peter Thiel, who is an advocate for immortality. And reading the book Zero to One played a significant role in, uh, in the path of evolutionism. Okay, so before I start conjecturing about cryonics, how about you explain your plan for it? How soon do you plan to start freezing people? Are we talking 50 years from now? 20 years from now? Tomorrow? Well, it is possible right now to sign up for cryonics and get cryonics done on you. And uh, I'm not that sure about the reliability of it right now, which is why it is that I encourage people to live a healthy lifestyle so they can live as long as they possibly can so the technology can improve as much as possible before they uh have to be frozen and so then i i feel that this wouldn't wouldn't this then play into this idea of the lambda point in your religion yes it, it would yes the lambda is about maintaining your own health and maintaining the health of the organization i think of it related to homeostasis in cells so then, with that, living this healthy lifestyle, I presume you have other tenets for that. Because health and lifestyle mean very different things to very different people. Even different religions prescribe different ways of healthy living. Though obviously there is some overlap. Yes, different religions do have different ideas of healthy living. Uh, some people are very strong on ideas of, say, abstaining from alcohol or something like that. I personally do not hold that view. There are some advocates for alcohol that overblow its health benefits. But my view is that mainly you should be involved with a community with a lot of social interaction. And ideally, you should try to make your attachment style into a secure attachment style. And you should be involved with uh, exercising and eating cooked food, which is uh, well-made. You know what? what's uh, jumping out at me most here with your discussion evolutionism is that, at least from an ethical standpoint, it has a lot in common with African ethical systems. Because in traditional sub-Saharan African philosophies, you do also have this idea that it is vital to have this strong community identity and to create this bridge between the past and the future. Many uh, black people today in Africa still have this idea of ancestors as a major part of life and that even people who have died physically are still fundamental role players in their community and have this interresponsibility with the younger generations. So that's quite a striking parallel. Well, I mean, firstly, would you just be aware of this? Because from what I'm hearing, you're mostly influenced by uh, Western philosophy and religious tradition in formulating evolutionism. I had a bit of familiarity, but not very much. And I'd really love for you to later on send me some books to uh, learn more about this. Oh, I'd be happy to help. I have a lot of hope for evolutionism in Africa. So to hear this similarity is really good for me. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if anyone, again, listening at home, if you are interested in African philosophy and African ethics, the, the first writer I would point you to, and I think 
the one that lays out best for a Western audience, which according to uh, channel analytics is like 80% of people who put up with me every week is Thaddeus Metz. Thaddeus Metz is a German philosopher actually, but he's lived in Africa for most of his life and actually has taught at the same university I work at, albeit in a different department. And he's actually formulated then African ethics and ethical systems for the modern day and has essentially taken the traditional beliefs and practices of various black communities all across the continent and has distilled core ideas. And, and why I recommend him to Western audiences is, well, he's a Westerner himself, and he lays these things out in the continental tradition. So if you're familiar then with Western philosophy, it's very easy to get into. Whereas somebody like Chimakonam or Odero Oruko and Beatty writes for an African audience. And if you're not obviously keyed into those cultures, it'll be a lot harder to grasp. So yeah, Kami, I'll definitely send you some information on this. I've written a couple of papers on these ideas myself. Thank you. But then speaking of, what other influences would you have? I've seen, obviously, you have Pierre Teilhard Sejan and his concepts of Omega Point. But I also hear then maybe some influence from uh, Dharmic religions. Well, the uh, yes, there is a uh, Dharmic influence. That is how I initially thought of the idea of Alpha, Lambda, Omega was with the three jewels of Buddhism. So Alpha would be Sangha, Lambda would be Dharma, and Omega would be Buddha. Right, right. I would say my uh, influences are a fair bit more Western than one may initially expect because they are at some points, rejected Western or obscure Western? I definitely noticed that because I'm, I'm fairly well versed in Catholic theology and uh, De Chardin's concepts of the noosphere and the Omega Point. Well, the Vatican responded to them politely, haven't really taken off. And as well, you know, this idea of physically involving yourself in this world to come is also, I think, quite alien to a Christian culture that still very much expects the second coming and for God to essentially do all the work in creating this system. Clearly shown a lot more importance in human involvement in this idea. Yes, I have. I have a fair bit of influence from Zoroastrianism. I wouldn't say a massive influence, but learning that Zoroastrianism thought this way was a major inspiration to me on how I wanted people to see the world. Okay. Now, I'm not too keyed in to Zoroastrianism, though the most I know about it is really this dualistic cosmology they have. Would you say there's something similar, especially with your promotion of life over entropy? I would say there is, although I think a little bit differently because Zoroastrianism sees it as being a conflict whereas I'm very firm on the idea that it's a puzzle. I guess this could be an application of the concept of Wu Wei to a cosmic struggle, though. Right. Now, what is Wu Wei, then? Wu Wei is the Taoist conception of accomplishing things with little effort, and I see it as being a concept related to lateral thinking. Right. 
you can think all you want about if there are a bunch of uh, berserker probes flying around the universe you can think as hard as you want about just flying into them and killing them yes and uh i mean it might work but it's probably going to be difficult but you could conceivably hack them or build up your economy so much that they become trivial as an alternative right so then it's it's taking the path of least resistance yes path of least resistance all right all right I've noticed you keep using uh, terms from science fiction, or at least terms popularized by science fiction. Why is that specifically? Why not, for instance, use more popular theological terminology? Because I see science fiction as being something that is fundamentally transcendent and divine. All right, all right. I see it as being a genre that gives us ways that we can move from here we are right now to the omega point and i see having a concrete idea of how it is that we would get there as being the key to getting there right now james as we've established you are actually a science fiction author what do you think about that does this play into your writing process for instance in faceless uh so i would not say that science fiction is divine Although the creative process certainly can be, because I think it's one of the most important aspects of uh, the human condition, whatever you want to say it. But most science fiction is fundamentally flawed, because even if you're thinking about the future, which is what most thought is, most, most stories get it wrong. They're inconsistent in, in themselves, and a, they're reflections of the author's incomplete scientific knowledge. I'm flattered that you think writing science fiction is divine, though. <laughs> well, yeah. I see it as even if somebody gets something wrong, if we keep on, uh, if we keep on improving on it and building on it, we can get closer and closer to the ideal. It can it can bring us closer to divinity in the future. Wouldn't you say then there's an issue of working from a flawed foundation? Uh, for instance, one thing I noticed in reference to the three-body problem, or one of my favorite science fiction series, actually, the Zeely sequence, is that these, were, these are contemporary works. The latest ones came out, I think, only like 2018. But modern science, especially astrophysics, moves at a very impressive pace. So the ideas, the fundamentals that Chi Shen Liu and Stephen Baxter write these books on change. And these are recent. So aren't you worried then that science fiction, even like hard science fiction written by people who are well-versed in these things, can become inaccurate or invalidated by their very presumptions about the universe? I don't see it as being as much that they factually get things right as it is that they help us think in a different way. They help us think about the future that we could create. Right. So then it's, their role isn't so much as like laying out a textbook as it is to create dialogue and raise awareness. Yes. And so then are you thinking of going into science fiction yourself, perhaps to then advertise evolutionism? Yes, I am currently writing a light novel that's a, uh, somebody gets isekai'd 2000 years into the future with cryonics. Okay. Why a light novel? 
because I see I see them as being quite accessible. They might not they might be perceived as less uh less intellectual, but I care about accessibility. This isn't necessarily scripture that has to be perfect. It's a way that will help get people thinking and uh, be as unintimidating as possible. So quick question for you. What do you think the definition of a light uh, novel I think is? the definition of a light novel is, uh, I don't consider it to have to be in Japanese, but I consider it to have a certain reading level that would be equivalent to the uh, the way it's presented in Japanese light novels, and then plus anime-style illustrations. Okay, so like a YA reading level. So if you could, you know, get through something like The Hunger Games or Divergent, your book wouldn't be challenging. Yes, yes, that's exactly what I'm intending. So then, why anime? Because I've noticed on your website as well, you use a lot of anime or anime-esque iconography. Just why did you choose this style? Well, one practical reason is that I believe that trans people are currently the best audience to expand this to early on. And that's in particular why I have the cat girl thing. Yeah. I've been on slash LGBT. So I've seen the, I've seen the motif. Yes. So the idea is I have a specific audience that I am trying to appeal to right now. I believe this is the best way to reach this audience. I believe that such transhumanistic ideals appeal most to uh, trans people who will want to, uh, in the future, get a body of opposite sex and become a cat girl or cowboy. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see that connection, you know, obviously, I think, well, I'm not transgender, so I'm, I'm speaking with secondhand knowledge here. But so then you're saying that, obviously, then this process does require medical intervention, it requires some very difficult surgeries, which obviously still have much room for advancement. And you're saying this then would be a natural segue into looking at further efforts and adventures into transhumanism. Yes, I do. All right. All right. I don't know whether the anime aesthetic will be something that 2000 years from now is going to be seen as evolutionist style paintings. Right. Yeah, that was but... something that Go on. But I have this aesthetic that I'm using right now, and I fully want to explore various aesthetics to uh, try to express the message in all sorts of ways. I see. I see. Yeah, one thing that really stuck out to me about this is, at least, you know, for somebody who's very much more involved in traditional religions, is the sense of gravitas you have. And obviously, you know, personal taste is you know, a personal issue. But regardless of whether you're going to you know, a synagogue or you're going to a Catholic church, many of them have this effect of what's called the numinous, which is a term from religious phenomenology that essentially means the unknowable, the greatness, the vast, something that makes you feel nervous, something that makes you feel awed, something that makes you feel inspired. And the artwork and the aesthetics goes a long way to that. And well, unfortunately, that's not something I really see with anime, because it's such a common commodity nowadays that it doesn't feel different or outside of everyday life. It just feels like part of it. 
aren't you then concerned that this anime imagery lacks gravitas, that people might not take evolutionism seriously with this presentation? I think that's a possibility, but I think it's also possible that having too much gravitas, at least right now, might not actually be the best way to uh, create something that's approachable for new ideas that people will be unfamiliar with. Right. Yeah, gravitas is earned after all. In the future, I might try to branch out into art of mega structures and things like that. A Dyson sphere could potentially provide that. A Dyson sphere. Yeah. Okay. Again, that's a that's a pretty out there concept, even more so than cryonics. At least people have attempted cryonics, and as far as I know, people have successfully frozen and revived insects and small mammals like rats. But nobody's ever built any sort of solar energy platform to encase a celestial body yet. Yeah, no, nobody has. There, there certainly could be Dyson spheres out in the Milky Way. There's almost no way to detect one because they're absorbing all of the light from their stellar body. So you like you'd be looking for a dark spot, which is pretty hard to spot in space. Well, needless to say, at least as far as I can tell, humans have not made a Dyson sphere yet. Oh, do you not believe in aliens? I'm not that sure about the existence of aliens because we haven't observed them yet, and uh, it's possible that there's a great filter that is uh, keeping them from existing. All right. So would that be then your solution to the Fermi paradox? I think I definitely want to hear your thoughts on when you're talking about immortality, you're talking about space colonization. Well, in my introduction, I do mention the Fermi paradox. I see the stages of salvation being Omega is eternal life. Lambda would be enlightenment. And then Alpha would be cosmic victory, which, which I would include beating the Great Filter if it does exist, as well as uh, potentially beating the heat death of the universe. And so wouldn't you maybe then consider, well, what if you run into an issue like the Dark Forest Theory, which there is alien life, but it's simply extremely secretive or dangerous. Wouldn't that run directly against your principles? Uh, how so? Well, what I thought was that a fundamental part of this is encouraging cooperation. That at least to me seemed like a major point of Lambda is fighting against fragility by building strong communities. But completely inimical communities, things that shoot on sight, seem very difficult to incorporate into a system like this. I would perceive such dark forest aliens as being essentially the equivalent of a satanic empire somewhere. And my solution, I would hope, would be to uh, create a coalition of any groups that are not like this and then respond to such an empire that way. It's quite a... Uh, a horrifying thought that such a empire could exist. But I don't think that we are going to uh, accomplish much without developing ourselves and then trying to make it so we could eventually fight back against them. Right, right, I see. So 
that actually that's actually part of the iconography that I am uh, using. As I said in the introduction, a group of robots, cat girls, and cute aliens fighting against Lovecraftian creatures. I see. Okay. And so I noticed you used the term satanic earlier. Obviously, we're not working with an Abrahamic framework. Obviously, all the Abrahamic religions have very different ideas of Satan and even theodicy. But I noticed you haven't really touched on spirituality, or at least non-physical entities or intelligence. Do you think there's room for metaphysics in this system? I would consider myself agnostic on uh, most of these questions. I think that they are very worth addressing, but it's also not necessarily a strong priority. I think it's actually one of your highest priorities. Consider this question. Uh, what happens to you when you freeze your body before death to wait for 2,000 years to be reincarnated as an anime cat girl? What happens to your mind? Well, that's a good question. I'm not entirely sure about the uh, hard problem of consciousness, and I don't know if it could ever truly be resolved. I see a lot of this as being somewhat faith-based, but I want to scientifically examine it as much as possible. Maybe a brain upload when you die will inherit your consciousness. Maybe even if you have no memories, your brain being uh, brought back physically would have a physical continuation of the consciousness. I want to explore all such options with this, even if it means that everyone will have 10 of them, that everyone will become 10 different anime cat girls with a kind of uh, Schrodinger's cat of who is the real one. Okay, obviously, like, first pun intended, uh, it was Schrodinger, yes, famous cat boy from the Helsing series. But also then with this, like I, I share James's concerns here because, okay, I, I am a theist, uh, Noahide currently. And so, you know, the question of a soul then would be very important to me. And it's something I would equate with consciousness. And that also then brings me to my next question. What is then evolutionism's viewpoint on other religions? Well, other religions, I would say almost every religion, if not every religion, instructs people to follow what I consider to be the Omega Covenant, which has three simple elements of do not kill somebody or deprive them of immortality, uh, do not institutionally interfere with uh, people's immortality, and do not spread hatred. I believe these are very simple cons very, very simple restrictions that almost every uh, religion that almost everybody who tries to follow the ethics of any religion will follow, except perhaps people who have anti-transhumanist views due to religion. But I see generally other religions, it's great that they exist because they provide people benefit. And I do not want to destroy such religions because that would, uh, that would deprive people of the benefit they get from them. Yeah, that, that would be another thing I'd like to know then, because at least, again, coming from a part Western, part African background, at, at least the major religions I encounter in my context in South Africa are institutionally quite strongly against this idea of transhumanism, that they consider the 
human form and or at least the general physical form and psychology of Homo sapiens sapiens to be something sacred or holy. And along with that, they're quite strongly opposed then even to transgenderism, let alone transhumanism. I would, uh, I would say on those institutions, I hope that they change their views. Right. Because I believe that if they do not change their views on such issues, then they will likely lose members because, and it might unfortunately even make people ignore many of the positive elements and have these positive elements get lost to history. Yeah, we're certainly seeing that here with the, the mainstream churches. I mean, both Catholic and Protestant Christianity, Sunni Islam have all taken major hits and are actually hemorrhaging members right now worldwide. So I would definitely then agree with you that unless we do see some kind of cultural shift or reform, there's a major question of how long these religions will continue to survive for. I personally lean towards saying that it could be very uh, rapid that they would decline. I'm not sure how long, but I could say conceivably within the next two centuries, many of these religions may functionally cease to exist. I think that's definitely quite possible. But that also brings me to another question. Where do you see the future of evolutionism going? Because I see on your website, you are definitely wanting a quote, intergenerational institution. How do you then plan to tangibly expand the church, like get it out of the online space and into physical structures? Well, I'll say that uh, let's assume we're in a situation 10 years from now and uh, it's quite large online. In such a situation like that, I would then start to try to uh, get people be involved with each other in family and uh, raising their children. I see that as being absolutely critical. It's an area that we're seeing a lot of problems with already. Many countries are not having enough children being born to replace the uh, dying population, and this is causing them economic issues. Yeah. And people find it very hard to have children. I believe that forming a community that helps people have children, explain to them how to uh, raise the children so the children do not have mental illnesses and uh, are economically able to prosper in the world. Perhaps having daycares and things like that would be really critical in, uh, in this. And even if the children are born into a bad world, the children will be able to get cryonically frozen and then uh, go into the world that they made. So I see this as resolving ethical issues, and I believe this is really the future of the church. Having children so that the children can take care of the people who are cryonically frozen for possibly a hundred generations I see. is a very big project. So don't you think that your project here should be first and foremost focused on being the ones to fix the cryonic technology? Doesn't that need to be your primary focus? And then what, lure in billionaires to bankroll you uh, and then focus on the community once you have a system where you can actually 
freeze an entire human body and thaw it out without destroying I believe that cell. the main obstacle to cryonics is actually related to intergenerational care rather than the physical technology. And people are not willing to invest much into the physical technology as long as uh, there is a belief that any company that does it is going to go bankrupt in 20 years and all the people will thaw out. That happened with the majority of people who are cryonically frozen in the 20th century. Well, sure, but that's always guaranteed to happen because you're advocating for exponential growth. Every generation is going to have more people added to the frozen pile that are going to need more maintenance, which is more cost and more labor. Uh, so it, it requires essentially, uh, essentially a pyramid scheme which is what, you know, every Western economy is anyways. The problem, though, is when you freeze a human body, the fluid in the cells crystallizes, which will shred cell membranes, ribosomes, mitochondria, your, your cell nuclei. It's exactly why uh, Wendy's advertises fresh, never frozen beef, is because when you freeze tissue, you destroy the molecules inside of it, and there is no surgery. There, there is nothing short of a million years from now, uh, godlike nanomachines putting you back together that will undo your cells being frozen and ripping apart all the organisms. Well, I am not ruling out a million years from now godlike nanomachines, uh, but I do see this as being a significant issue, and it's, and I believe that there being a well-established market already is going to provide the necessary funding for cryonics companies to uh, develop better technology. I believe that uh, right now we just do not have an economic environment that facilitates the funding being put into this research, and I hope to change that. I will say that my background is a lot more in economics than it is in biology, so uh, that's also my strength. Right, I see. And uh, yeah, I do think that James raises quite a powerful point here because, yeah, I suppose you can conceivably in your system brush all million years and say, you know, eventually we will get around this problem. But if like a tangible aspect, and this is again what I specialize in, it's very difficult, I think, to propose to somebody a maybe, especially on a maybe of that time scale, saying if in a million years or if when we have nanomachines of this quality, then we can bring you out. A million years is a long time. Hell, I mean, a week is a long time for most people. A million years is fucking ages. So aren't you then worried that like people like James who do understand chronics and do have that background in biomedical to criticize it might say then and quite loudly protest against evolutionism saying this is just not viable for the practical future? So why should people invest in the system if they will possibly never see returns or see returns in such an, a time frame that it's impossible for the average person to conceive of? Well, in terms of possibility for conception, there, there's always the usage of science fiction to make what becomes impossible to conceive of possible to conceive of. But in practical terms, I will say that that the key is to actively be involved with 
funding the research and uh, getting people who are actively involved involved with it involved with evolutionism right right so the science is is a very serious thing that we will have to work on but it is not my personal specialty so out of curiosity have you ever read or heard of the babaverse series i have not surprisingly good for as like immature as it comes across uh, I do actually recommend it, but the initial premise is the main character is a vehement atheist and gets himself frozen on death because he wants to be thawed out when he can be brought back to life. Except, a thousand years later, uh, religious fundamentalists have taken over Earth and declared all these frozen bodies are dead, therefore they can legally be used to make AI slaves with their consciousness as a template. Because the political situation deteriorated during his cryosleep. Series is a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of space exploration. It's something to think about that, uh, you know, if the predator species does show up, what's going to happen to all the frozen bodies compared to the, uh, the people actively alive? That is a very good question. And it's why it is that evolutionism so strongly focuses on trying to build robust institutions now because such robust institutions could prevent something like that from happening right so it's future proofing through essentially creating organizations that can withstand and manage culture in such a way that we don't see these apocalyptic futures yes it is my vision is that say a hundred years from now people will feel that the future is a lot more tangible because of their ancestors who are frozen and feeling that and knowing that they themselves will be frozen too right uh yes it, yeah it leaves back then to this idea of continuity yes but one thing i did want to ask then especially since you mentioned brain uploads which again I've, as far as i know haven't been successfully executed on a human being due to the firstly just incredible amount of data stored in a human brain it's like thousands of terabytes is what about cloning instead of cryonics perhaps that if you record somebody's genetic information and you can take a brain upload couldn't this hypothetically be far easier to preserve if storage space on computers expands which it has been doing exponentially for like the past 30 years might it not be something worth checking into then it could be potentially useful it's uh it's something that i see as being uh Probably a clone is just going to be another person with brain uploading, maybe a little bit more likely. This is something that I see as being possibly enough to preserve somebody, but I want to uh, go through all sorts of different ways. I think realism kind of puts it's like all of its eggs in one basket with cloning, and I don't see cloning as that feasibly working in the way they propose. Right, right. Are you familiar with realism? Realism? Yeah. I am not, no. What is realism? It is another religion. Um, they believe in giving people an afterlife by cloning them, although they have all sorts of stuff about claiming alien revelations, so it's less of a philosophical system that was actively created in the way evolutionism is. All right. It's not one that I 
personally would describe as an inspiration of mine, but it is something that I imagine evolutionism will be compared to in the future. Right. I'm following. Okay. But then talking about religion, because you are very clear that this is materialistic, that it's a philosophical system. And I don't want to say it's more like a political ideology than a religion, at least in the classical Western sense. Is do you have any principles of worship, for instance, or prayer or community fellowship? Well, I have personally participated in the services of many different religions, and I strongly like them. I have not developed a uh, a system yet that I would say is a well developed liturgy. I have done some rituals on my own, and I've done some rituals with other people who believe in it but I have not uh, established anything particularly formal yet. However, I do want to, in the future, implement a Omega ceremony that would be done for somebody whenever they are born, and then a Lambda oath where they would take on the additional obligations of Lambda when they're 18, and then a uh, comprehensive... Uh, system of vetting and a ceremony at the end, which I call coronation, that will bring you to Alpha. I see. All right. As far as, like, weekly worship, I I personally like uh, Christian weekly worship, but it's not something that I'm sure whether it fits in with it. Yeah, is that, that stuck out to me is obviously a large part of Christian worship. Granted, Christianity is a very diverse religion. But it focuses about, in many senses, a liminal connection with the divine to bring somebody out of mundane existence and into what they believe is a connection with God, Jesus Christ. And obviously you don't have God in your system. So then you essentially, I think, just reroute this all to worship for the sole purpose of strengthening community bonds, not any perceived metaphysical benefit. Well, I see... Alo or Alpha, Lambda, Omega, as being a sort of divinity. Um, All right. So like an organizing principle then? Yes. But not one that would then be personal? Not one that would not, have a clear... Not a word. personal one. All right. All right. I would say for more personal relationships would... Uh, I've thought about in the past having some kind of a yearly uh, visit to your ancestors. Right. The idea is that your ancestors are your connection to Alo, as are your descendants. I see. Yeah. Now that's definitely a very different position on ancestors than you would see in traditional African religions, which do have a heavy focus on ritualism and then the power of prayer, and especially then connection with the divine. Granted, it is up for debate in various African religions, especially when you look at the overlap with Christianity and what's called the African Indigenous Initiated Churches on whether God is personal or not, but God's intercessors, the ancestors, lesser deities, spirits are personal. And so a lot of prayer then is a way to connect with these forces and basically correct the management of the world to ensure harmony. So that, yeah, that's just something that struck out to me is a very different idea of the role of ancestors and how they're connected with it. So were you saying that it was closer to the African idea or further away from the African idea? Further away, because 
your ancestors are still frozen. So they're not going to be able to communicate. You can still learn from your ancestors because your ancestors are going to leave numerous uh, writings and videos that you could learn from them. Right. And uh, your ancestors are also, in a very imminent sense, uh, your connection with the Alpha and the Omega. I see. Okay. I, I would say people may very well look at their frozen ancestors and then feel as though this is a kind of liminal connection with the divine in a way that I'd say would be parallel, but just a little bit more physicalistic. That definitely makes sense, yes. If your ancestors did not exist, then that would mean that the system would not have nearly as much credibility. If you have dozens of generations of your ancestors uh, all waiting to be unfrozen, then you can know fully well that this will last dozens of generations into the future until eventually we manage to get unfrozen. Don't you think that that's a burden on the descendants? An ever-growing massive responsibility that they screw it up? Everything was for nothing? Well, I think that people might perceive it as such. I don't think that that is... I don't think there's an ethical issue with that, because I believe that this system is going to be making it so the descendants will have better lives, possibly even independently of uh, having better afterlives as well, because everyone is working together to make this better system and function in this sort of new social contract. Yeah, but yeah, I did notice already we're seeing, especially in places with declining populations, such as uh, I believe Japan, South Korea, and, and much of Western Europe, and as well as China, that the younger generations do have this growing at least tax burden of each person is being expected to support with their income an ever expanding number of elderly people. So I think even with technological advancement, we could see something similar with evolutionism, that the number of cryogenically frozen people grows, but it grows proportionately larger to the number of living people and a technological infrastructure capable of supporting them. My knowledge on cryonics and the active maintenance cost is that it is relatively low, and I could easily conceive of one person being able to support a thousand ancestors with current technology. Fun fact, humans almost always underestimate exponential growth, which is part of the reason we're in the economic situation we're in. Humans don't understand what geometric growth actually entails. Give it 200 years in your plan, you'd have, let's say you take off, just a few generations and you'll have millions and millions and millions of frozen people by this plan. Well, I see that as being something that would be still very uh, realistic to be able to maintain, especially compared to uh, other things that we do have to maintain. Yeah, it's definitely a good point. And so we're moving towards wrapping up now. So Kami, would be anything else you would like to share about evolutionism then, the Alpha Lambda Omega principles? Uh, one thing that I did not mention is enlightenment. I mentioned it early on, but I did not really elaborate on it. So I do consider mysticism to actually be quite a strong element. I see it as being a, 
a part of the lambda and I have a conception of enlightenment based upon an idea of cognitive optimization, I'd say it's directly, uh, it descends from the dharmic conception of enlightenment, but it is quite different in certain ways. Right. Okay. And yeah, obviously, again, enlightenment, as far as I know, in dharmic is somewhat theistic, or at least it involves transcendence. Yes. And I consider it to involve such as well. All right. I see it as being a, uh, a kind of optimization of your mental models of the world and meaning. I'm most influenced by cognitive scientist John Verveke on this who himself is a practicing Buddhist. Right. And so then would this uh, idea of transcendence also be something you would use or believe could combat the heat death of the universe? Well, I believe that, I believe people who have achieved enlightenment are substantially more productive and uh, they also fear death less among other things. And this will help people in their productivity in going against the heat death of the universe and uh james craig have you uh heard of the concept of transapience i have not it is an idea that a uh an ai or a post-human could reach a certain higher level of consciousness that could be a singularity beyond human consciousness such that they are able to think in a way that's incomprehensible to humans and this could occur in several different levels. I link this concept to enlightenment, although not strictly. And I see this as being a very major contributing factor to how it is that we will eventually, uh, eventually achieve our cosmic goals. That does seem like something that would definitely touch on the principles of Wu Wei, as you thought earlier. This great push towards lateral thinking and, again, nonviolent solutions solutions that preserve life and embody these principles that you've discussed, that perhaps an enlightened person in your system would be one who naturally lives out evolutionist concepts. Yes, that is an idea. Right, right. Well, this has been fascinating. Thanks for coming on and explaining this. I certainly hope that we'll see great things from evolutionism moving forward. Well, thank you. It was a great time talking to you, and uh, I hope that we can talk again. Awesome. Great. And as well, thanks, James, for making the time to come here. Your insights about science and science fiction are definitely very helpful, too. Lots of good dialogue there. Thanks for having great. me on again. And so then, you know, everyone, thanks for coming on. And, you know, for people at home, thanks for listening. As always, I've been your host, L.L. Boshane, and until next time. Let's look out for those cat boys. I'm told they never die. I may have gone too far in a few places. 